0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Susie Crate, professor of anthropology at George Mason University. Susie will tell us about how she studies environmental issues through an anthropological lens and describe the community in northern Siberia that she's been studying since 1991. We'll talk about how that community is being affected by climate change and how they are planning for the future. Stay with us. Okay, Susie Crate from George Mason University, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. My pleasure. So, Susie, you're um, the first anthropologist that we've had on the show, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, your approach to thinking about climate change and the environment and how you you study it um, but first can you tell us a little bit about how uh, you got into um, uh, the world of climate change and started thinking about it uh, uh, from the disciplinary lens that you have
1: Certainly I had known and heard about the greenhouse effect probably from the late 80s uh, that's what it was typically termed back then but it wasn't until the late 90s uh, that I got climate change. In other words, uh, I understood what the implications were, and that was because I went to a very uh, effective presentation by David Orr uh, at the time, and also because my daughter was four years old and I was doing the math, figuring out how old she would be at some of the projected uh, points uh, out into the future. Uh, And I got interested in it professionally when I was, after working with uh, Viliwisaha communities in northeastern Siberia for 15 years, they started asking me about how the winters were warmer, the summers were colder, the rain was coming at the wrong times, the seasons, seasonal timing was off. All things that I knew had to do with climate change. Uh, and we... Decided to collaborate on a full-fledged project in that area.
0: Right, that makes sense. And we're gonna we're gonna come back to that community in Siberia and talk about them specifically in, in a couple of minutes. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to say the name every time because I'm sure I'm gonna mess it up uh, severely. Okay, no problem. Um, so, uh, but 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 before we talk about the specifics of your work, can can you just tell us a little bit about how you think about doing research on climate change? Um, So as you know, RFF, you know, we're mostly economists. Many of the people that we interact with are uh, economists and and policymakers. We think a lot about trade-offs that are required to address environmental problems. Um, As an anthropologist uh, coming up and studying this issue, can you tell us just a little bit about how you think about the effects of climate change and what role climate policy sort of takes in your research, if it takes any role at
1: all? Certainly. To do that, I need to give you a little background on anthropology and climate change. Yeah, Anthropology has four fields, archaeology, linguistic anthropology, social or cultural anthropology, and biological or physical anthropology. Archaeologists have been looking at climate change for a long time because in the past there have been events of climate change. Anthropologists, environmental anthropologists have also been interested in it for a long time, but It's only been in the last 20 years that anthropologists started really seriously looking at it in the field of environmental anthropology, which is one of the subfields of cultural or social anthropology. And now it's really taken off. You can find anthropologists working in all the four fields and in many of the subfields that I mentioned working on climate change because it really affects people in all aspects that anthropology looks at. Yeah. So uh, I'm an environmental anthropologist. I also do cognitive anthropology. So in terms of environmental anthropology, I'm interested in human environment interdependence and interactions, how people make sense of their world based upon their cultural understanding, et cetera. And cognitive anthropology was really getting into perceptions, how people perceive what is going on around them and their interactions. So these are these are very uh, good areas of anthropology to look at and investigate climate change. In terms of cognitive anthropology and environmental anthropology for that matter too, a lot of what I look at are knowledge systems. So either indigenous knowledge or local knowledge and also uh, narrative. So how people describe and talk about climate change.
0: Right. And are there ways in which um, climate policy factors into your research or is it sort of a secondary uh, step?
1: Climate policy definitely factors into it because, uh, for example, right now I'm a lead author on one of the special reports by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's the second special report. You probably heard that the first one on 1.5 degrees came out last fall. This is the second one, which is a special report on oceans and cryosphere and a changing climate. Right. So ocean and cryosphere are all the frozen places of the planet. And within that, I'm helping to frame the section on knowledge systems. It's critical for policymakers uh, to understand and scientists, in fact, I'm learning as I'm working with other scientists on this special report, to understand that the majority of people on the planet do not think and act based on science. They think and act based on local knowledge or indigenous knowledge. So for policymakers to understand that, to understand that their policies have to be The only way their policies can be effective is is if they bring them into the understandings that the people that they are addressing maintain and the ways they understand change, the ways they interact with each other um, across stakeholder groups. So in my mind, it's extremely critical, um, but it takes a little bit of doing because it's, it's not business as usual for policymakers. So uh, this is one of the key issues, key messages we're trying to communicate in the special report. And of course, this sets up a precedence. So these knowledge systems will be in all of the IPCC reports from this point on. So that's one area that I can think directly um, about how our work is very much uh, engaged in policy.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So. Well, there's so many questions I want to ask you about that. Maybe just one question would be: So, when you're thinking about this issue of communicating in frameworks that, I guess, to paraphrase, you know, make sense to people in their context, is that? is it is it something where policy design needs to take that into account before the policy is developed, or is it the sort of thing where policymakers will make their decisions and then figure out how to communicate effectively? Um, basically, I'm asking, like, does this knowledge need to be incorporated at the front end or the back end of the policy process?
1: I would say that the the place of knowledge systems in the front end in the development of policy is really more about policymakers having an understanding of their audience, right? So yeah. when, a, when a speaker creates a talk, they think about their audience. A policymaker needs to understand, and of course, policymakers know their audience, but what they need to understand about their audience is their capacity to um, understand or what kinds of narratives and language do they need to use, for there to be an understanding. And then, of course, in the delivery, that's critical. Uh, And so science is, we're used, we're brought up on science. This is the kind of understanding that we're surrounded by all the time. Numbers, crunching numbers. Economists are familiar with this, I know. (laughs) Um, And that's what we're brought up with. People, we know for a fact, people respond to narrative. They respond to stories. Um, And I'm not talking about children's stories. I'm talking about bringing people into an understanding via their being able to relate to it. Yeah. And that's, you know, we'll talk about the documentary later, but that's one of the beauties, I think, of the documentary that we put together.
0: Right. Fantastic. Right. So the documentary called The Anthropologist, which um which I think we'll touch on in, in a couple minutes. So um so let's let's move on and um let me ask you a question about another topic that you've thought a lot about and, and written about, which is the role of advocacy and the intersection between advocacy and research. So uh, you know, for someone to do advocacy around climate change, I think there's a certain amount of research that has to occur before advocacy uh, will take place so that the advocacy is informed. Um, but you've written and thought about sort of the relationship between advocacy and research uh, for anthropologists. So can you talk a little bit about um, why you see advocacy or, or how you see the connection between advocacy and research uh, in, in your own work?
1: Well, anthropologists are trained to be what we could call cultural interpreters. So we're trained to understand how people uh, live in their world, how they make sense of their world, uh, their symbolic forms that they use to communicate and the meaning, you know, how they generate meaning in their lives. So when you are in a research context where you know certain things. I'll use the example of climate change, because it makes sense to have a, an example. Mm-hmm. So, for example, with Vilui Saha, uh, in the process of doing focus groups and interviews where we were basically eliciting uh, from inhabitants the kinds of changes they were observing. And by the way, we didn't use the term climate change in our research. We just were getting people to talk about the kinds of changes they were seeing what they thought the changes uh, were caused by, or what was causing the changes, uh, the ways it was affecting their lives, etc. We found out that most people did not associate the changes they were observing with climate change because later we found out that there was no locally contextualized information about it. They knew of of climate change, they'd heard about it for 5 or 10 years at that time, this was 2008, They'd read about it in the paper and heard about it on the radio and the TV, but it was all about climate change happening in other parts of the world. So we understood at that point in time that it was critical to bring to them the understanding of climate change. And it, it, I'm not talking about the Al Gore talk. I'm talking about finding, I was collaborating at the time with a permafrost scientist, Alexander Fyodorov, at the Permafrost Institute in Yakutsk. And I mentioned to him that it would be great to do a knowledge exchange because uh, their intimate knowledge of change was invaluable to him as a scientist to understand how climate change was affecting these very local ecosystems and cultures. But it was also valuable for them to have his research looking at how the permafrost was thawing, looking at the changes that were coming as a result of that, for them to make sense of what was going on around them. So we did that. And this is sort of a long story to come around to uh, the kind of advocacy that I think is crucial, critical, especially when we're talking about the kind of uh, global change that is not really within local people's understanding. It's nothing that they've been taught about from their parents or grandparents or anywhere down the line of their lineage you know this is a brand new type of change so that makes it important to be able to uh, bring that in and also to recognize uh, and value their their local knowledge or their indigenous knowledge of the changes
0: yeah that's fascinating. Um, so, so you've mentioned the Viluy Saha a couple of times, um, and I very heard, uh,
1: good pronunciation.
0: Oh, good! I got it on the first time. I was I was practicing it quietly as you were <laughs> speaking. Um, so, uh, so you mentioned them a couple of times. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Uh, sort of where they are. Uh, you mentioned that they're in Siberia. Um, I know you've been studying them since I think 1991. Correct me mm, if that's exactly. wrong, but. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just tell us a little bit about kind of you know some of their history uh the the climate that they currently live in and any other like really important pieces of information um that uh that help uh understand their uh their culture
1: sure um so the Louis saha I should just mention first that this name is given to saha who live along a river called the Vilui River as opposed to or in addition to a group of Saha who live in what are called the central regions. These are both located in the larger area in northeastern Russia called the Saha Republic. It used to be called Yakutia in the Soviet period. Capital is Yakutsk. If you ever pay, played Risk, the board game Risk, you would know the the name of Yakuts.
0: I'm sad to say I never. I wish I now. I wish I had played Risk, but I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe it, but... I'm
1: dating myself. You know. No, so I'm it.
0: sure plenty of our plenty of our listeners will get the reference. I'm just uh, not one of them. <laughs>
1: so the interesting piece of this is that Vilui the Sahar, they're a Turkic-speaking peoples. Their Turkic ancestors transmigrated from Central Asia around 900 to southern Siberia around Lake Baikal, and in the Genghis Khan period, they were pushed away. Out of there, and they traveled north, following the Lena River, to where they are now in northeastern Siberia, and they settled in this area because of the abundance of natural hay fields and again, you know this these natural hay fields have have a lot to do with the permafrost story because it's anyway these special ecosystems that they settled on, but their horse and cattle breeders they uh, adapted to an extreme climate with uh, over 100 degrees Celsius annual temperature change from minus 60 Celsius to plus 40 Celsius in the summer. And um, wow. they so, did this...
0: Sorry to interrupt. In, in Fahrenheit terms, uh, gosh, I can't do the translation in my head. What, what's that roughly in Fahrenheit so terms? So
1: it, it would be approximately 100 degrees in the summer. It, it's completely dry, so don't think about 100 degrees in Washington, D.C. Right. There's no humidity. Well, it's the same amount of heat. It's just more bearable. Uh, and m- minus 75 Fahrenheit.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's, it's, that, that's really something.
1: Yeah. The stories about the cold, you know, you spit and it freezes before it hits the ground and kind of bounces away. Yeah. <laughs> so it's extremely cold. That is that is changing, though. And I can tell you a little bit more about that later. Yeah. Um so here they come in the 1300s, 1400s into this area, of course, in, in several waves. And, of course, it wasn't clean and neat. You know, there's a lot of interactions with other groups, a lot of intermarriages, a lot of mixing of blood, et cetera. Um, and, of course, the Russian colonization in the 1600s, uh, and then the last hundred years of collectivization and state farm establishment. And then the breakup after the Soviet period, the post-Soviet period. Now, I would I would argue those were the biggest historical changes that came about. Yeah, absolutely. I could go on and on and on, but you probably don't right. want me to.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, the I, I I do want you to, but we have to keep it relatively short. So, can you give us an example of how climate change is affecting? Uh, the community today and how it is likely to affect the community tomorrow and sort of what important cultural elements of the community are um, kind of in in play or in question?
1: Sure. Let me start this out by just saying that I work with people who are very much, uh, well, let's say they're born in the same place that their parents were born, their grandparents were born, and however many before them. Perhaps, again, in the collectivization period and et cetera, they were forced to move into a larger and larger village village context. But in general, they have stayed relatively close or on their homelands, and there's a very strong attachment to that. And there's been a lot written, um, at least in my understanding, about how uh, critical it is for us to think about, place attachment. That's the term that's used for um, peoples who are very connected to their land. Um, So one of the important things to think about when we're talking about how climate change is affecting these people culturally is that land, that connection to place, that connection to homeland. And when we're in parts of the world, and this is going to be happening in more temperate areas soon, but if we're in areas of the world which are dependent on ice, like the Arctic areas or the high mountain glacial areas, or we're at near sea level areas, when you think about the multitude of uh, island atolls in the South Pacific and the island nations in the South Pacific, you're going to be working with people who are have very strong place attachment. So a lot of what's happening for them, of course, it's difficult for them to manage with the physical changes. But I would argue that perhaps we need to understand that more difficult for them is this place attachment and, and seeing uh, their their homeland changing the way it is. Uh, and and not not knowing right what what is going to be in the future. So for Louis Saha, yeah, the the first epiphany I had about this was with the bull of winter, which basically you know, again, if we think about indigenous and local knowledge, people have specific ways of understanding how how the the seasons change, how the annual cycle is, et cetera. And for Saha, they have this understanding that this very what used to be this very deep, dry, cold period for three months. In the winter, there was a bull who came, and that bull would stay for those three months, named the Bull of Winter. And in my uh, 2006 interviews, as I was starting to really hear uh, community members talk about the changes, and in my own mind, knowing that they were very uh, mostly associated with climate change, we interviewed 30 elders, and 10 of them talked about the bull of winter not arriving. In other words, the winter's not being as cold. Uh, what I'm seeing now, though, after 15 years of this research focusing on climate change and other changes, is that it's uh, the Alask systems that I mentioned already. These ecosystems with the lake and the area around them that is lush hayfield and then the uh, boreal forest. Many Saha who are living out in the rural areas identify with an alas as their birth alas. This is their their identification of their specific, you know, attachment to it. And these alas have a kind of permafrost underneath them that has large pieces of ice in it. So as that permafrost thaws, it tends to change dramatically. The land surface falls or it rises Uh, in some parts in the central regions. My uh, permafrost scientist collaborator took me this December when I was there to visit some communities who literally have lakes forming um, around their yards. And they have no intention of of leaving. Uh, You know, a policymaker might look at this situation and go, oh, yeah, they've got to get out of there. You know, let's relocate them. On the ground, people have no intention. I mean, Alexander Fyodorov is working with these communities to help them understand how they can protect the permafrost, you know, by taking the snow away so that it's really cold and it keeps it frozen. So I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but um, these cultural uh, effects, we could say, of climate change are very much, you know, part and parcel of understanding knowledge systems, understanding, you know, that people have a specific way of understanding how their world works and that's critical for policymakers to to grapple with
0: yeah and I mean just understanding the the impacts of climate change and range of adaptations that are available to people at least uh, in their own minds as they're as they're thinking about it um, so so you mentioned you know that many of these uh, many of the Saha have no intention of leaving are there are there adaptations that they could make that you think would realistically allow them, uh, or at least some of them, in these you know more disrupted areas, to actually stay in place uh, as climate changes? And of course, as we know, the Arctic is warming faster than you know the world uh, on average, so they're likely to face these effects uh, more quickly than um, than the population on average.
1: Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, Alexander Fyodorov is working with communities so that they can understand how to protect the permafrost that's directly under their house and yard. Uh, Of course, the ultimate thing is that we have to stop emitting greenhouse gases. But in lieu of that happening anytime soon, uh, soon due to other factors which we won't go into right now, um, uh, you know, the The practice of, as I mentioned already, moving the snow once every time it snows, to clear the yard of snow. Snow is an insulator. If the snow is there over the land in the frigid winter, it's going to keep the land, the yard warm, relatively less cold, let's say. So helping to preserve the permafrost under their yards by clearing the snow off. And of course, you can't do that for all of Siberia. But uh, people can do this in their own, in their own yards.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: I mean, I, yeah, I, I unfortunately, I'm not very hopeful. I'm working on a book right now. I have a British Museum Fellowship um, and I'm working on a book about my almost 30 years of work. And I, I liken permafrost, this thawing of the permafrost to someone who's turning over in bed <laughs> and you know, it's, it's very hard to get them to turn back, you know, mm. they're going to turn over. It's what I, what I'm trying to say through that analogy is that we've really set in motion something that is going to be extremely difficult to reverse.
0: Right. Yeah. And that analogy actually holds extra weight for me because I have a eight month old baby who can roll onto his belly, but can't <laughs> roll back onto his back. <laughs> so, uh, so I know exactly Aww. what you mean there. Um, so Susie Crate, these are so many fascinating um elements of your research and i wish again that we had more time to talk about them but we're going to we're going to close out our conversation uh with the top of the stack segment which is uh where we ask you what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that you've enjoyed and that you'd recommend to our listeners and i'm going to start off recommending a uh new yorker article that i read it was uh, and maybe the issue a couple of weeks ago is called uh, The Day the Dinosaurs Died by Douglas Preston. And basically, this article is about an archaeologist who um, fancies himself a bit uh, in the mold of uh, Indiana Jones, who actually makes a, a discovery in Montana that seems to have captured Um, Thousands of organisms who died just in the hours, the few hours following the impact of an asteroid that struck near the Yucatan Peninsula and wiped out more than 99% Mm -hmm. of life about 66 million years ago on Earth. So it's Mm -hmm. this really incredible discovery, or at least it appears to be. Um, And there's one... Uh, a couple sentences in particular uh, that describe the impact of the asteroid that I just loved and, and wanted to share. So, so here's a couple sentences from the uh, article called "The Day the Dinosaurs Died." The energy released was more than that of a billion Hiroshima bombs, but the blast looked nothing like a nuclear explosion with its signature mushroom cloud. Instead, the initial blowout formed a rooster tail, a gigantic jet of molten material which exited the atmosphere. Some of it fanning out over North America. So just really evocative language, and and the article is fascinating. So I'd, I'd recommend mm. it to anyone who's interested in history or archaeology or um, any yeah, of that stuff. Yeah, that
1: sounds that sounds fascinating.
0: Yeah. How about you, Susie? What have you uh, read or listened to or enjoyed lately?
1: Well, um, I not that I am you know full of myself or anything, but I will really recommend the anthropologist, which is this documentary that I'm in with my daughter uh, and. Margaret Mead's daughter is in it, and there's some footage from Margaret Mead, which follows us to Siberia, to our field site there. We also go to Kiribati, which is in the South Pacific, to talk with communities there about sea level rise. And we go to the Peruvian Andes to talk to communities there about the disappearance of the glaciers and people's dependence on the glacier, not just for water, but their spiritual, cosmological understanding of the glaciers. We also go to the Chesapeake Bay. I told the filmmakers that it would be important for us to go somewhere also uh, within the United States to help viewers understand that this is not something just happening in these faraway places to these people that look so different from us. So we went and talked to watermen who are Chesapeake Bay oyster and crab harvesters and got them to talk about the changes that they're seeing and i was amazed when this one gentleman talked about how they used to get 2000 pounds of lobster out of the Chesapeake bay and uh they don't they don't catch any anymore so that's that's kind of uh eye opening to think about that lobster used to come from the Chesapeake bay
0: yeah fascinating we'll certainly look out for um the anthropologist the film which i've watched the trailer of it looks fascinating i haven't seen the the full thing yet um but uh but thank you so much for those recommendations Susie crate and thank you again so much for joining us and telling us about your work um here on resources radio we really appreciate it
1: well the pleasure's been all mine
0: thank you so much for joining us on resources radio we'd love to hear what you think so please rate us on itunes or leave us a review it helps us spread the word also Feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.